Good morning. Thank you to Mike and Katie for doing music today. You guys sounded great. Um, it's good to be back. Definitely feeling better and appreciate everyone's prayers. Um, definitely see quite a few empty spaces today. So just be praying for our brothers and sisters here from the church. I know some people are traveling this week, but illness is going around. Um, also want to thank Steve so much for praying, or for praying, well for that too, for preaching for me last week. And um, I asked him on Friday, and that's a, that's a big thing to ask somebody on Friday if they can preach for you on Sunday. And I, it was a great sermon by the way, I really appreciated your message, and I appreciate you stepping up, because that's uh, not the easiest situation to get thrown into on such short notice, and so... I sincerely thank Steve for that. It was a huge relief. I, I realized on Friday there was no way it would be wise for me to be here on last Sunday, and so I'm so appreciative. Um, we're still raising money for the hospital in Ghana. I made the, I didn't make this. Carrie made this. Uh, this poster, which is tracking how much we've raised. Again, our goal, if we raise $3,000, Empty Tombs Mission Match will... Uh, match that amount of money. And so we're raising money for this hospital in Ghana. And once again, thanks to Carrie for making this beautiful. I, I could never begin to make something like this. So thanks for that. Um, I didn't get to say this last week, but I want to sincerely thank everybody who helped out with VBS, uh, especially Abby. It is so much work to be the person who is coordinating everything. And it begins far before VBS week. And so it was another great VBS and just so appreciative of that, of her and of everyone else who helped to make that such a great week for all of these kids. Uh, last thing before we get into our passage, which will be 1 Samuel 13 this morning. Uh, this is a new project I've been working on. Um, you know, a lot of people, both from this church and from outside this church, listen to our services, watch our services, um, something that I'm creating as a new tool for training in evangelism is uh, what I'm calling the Evangelism Training Podcast. Starting out, it'll come out once a month, and it'll be a different interview each month. This month, I interviewed a man named uh, Dr. Sam Chan, who is an uh, evangelist from Australia. He actually has two doctorates. He's a PhD, and he's also a, a surgeon. Um, but we talk about evangelism. He's written several books on the subject. And we'll put those on the church's Facebook page. It'll be on the church's YouTube page. Uh, so if you've ever watched our services, it'll be in the same place. Uh, or you can also go to evangelismtrainingpodcast.com. And again, something that's meant to be just one more tool to train us, myself included, for evangelism and doing the work of an evangelist. And so definitely encourage you to... Give that a watch or a listen, and uh, I think it'll be a good thing. First Samuel chapter 13 is where we'll be this morning. And we come to the end of our little summer series on the rise and fall of King Saul. Again, the purpose wasn't to cover every single event in Saul's life, but just the introduction to Saul's character, his early successes, and ultimately his fall from grace the story starts to transition to more of a focus on David, uh, which, Lord willing, at some point we might get into his story too. But 
for this season, we're concluding with uh, Saul's story. So 1 Samuel chapter 13, I'll read the passage. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad at Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offerings. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down to the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now, there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul or, or with Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, said, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Would you pray with me?
Our Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we have the opportunity to worship you today. Lord, for people who might have COVID or other illnesses, Lord, we want to pray for them today. Uh, just for speedy recoveries, it is not fun to have. And just want to pray for this church for good health. Lord, we want to pray for our time in your word today. We pray that we be pointed to your gospel, that we be pointed to truth. And Lord, we pray for this week that we would go out and we would be your hands and feet, that we would serve you, that we would shine as light. In Jesus' name, amen. So two weeks ago, we were in chapter 11, and that represented the height of Saul's reign as he led Israel to victory over the Ammonites. In chapter 12, it's a speech from the prophet Samuel where he talks of Israel's sin before God. Ultimately, the Lord will not abandon the Israelites because they are his chosen people. In today's chapter, we see the beginning of Saul's downfall. From his original sin, we will see a man in a monarchy that spiral out of control. So to get our bearings in this passage, as a reminder, Saul was the king of Israel. But just because he was the king didn't mean that he could do absolutely whatever he wanted. That's how many monarchs throughout history have reigned. Absolute monarchs, where they are totally sovereign, where their word is law. In many times and places, kings have been looked to as semi-divine figures. But that isn't the case in Israel. And as we've said throughout this series, human kings are meant to point to Israel's true king. That is, it's the Lord who is on the throne of heaven. Saul was the king, but Samuel was his prophet. And Samuel had his own role within, the, within Israel. And Saul disregards that in his sin. And more importantly, Saul disregards the commands of the Lord. The main idea of today's passage is that we need to trust that God is enough when we don't think we have enough. And we'll look at this passage in three scenes. First scene, Israel at war with the Philistines. Looking at verses 1 and 2. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And a thousand were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Verse 1 is very difficult. It surely doesn't mean that Saul was a one-year-old when he became king. Especially given that Saul has a son, Jonathan, who's old enough to be leading armies of Israelites himself. Different scholars and translations have tried to approach this verse in different ways. I think the simplest conclusion is that there's a piece of information which was lost in the early transmissions of the book of 1 Samuel. I realize that's not a satisfying answer. Some translations of the Bible will stick a number in here in 1 Samuel 1 and say something like, Saul was 30 years old. That's what the NIV and NLT both do. That's probably an educated guess, and they're getting it from the Greek translations. But ultimately, we don't have the Hebrew that specifically says the number 30 in this verse. That's not what the earliest manuscripts say. So while that might be a more palatable translation, I think it's appropriate that the ESV here has preserved the earliest manuscript tradition. 
There might be other verses in the Bible where this happens. This is the only one I can think of where this specific issue arises. So it's something that's exceedingly rare in the Bible. Most scholars think that by the end of this first verse, it's back in line with the original manuscript and the intended meaning that Saul had been reigning for two years. So in 1 Samuel 10, Saul becomes king. Chapter 13 is a couple years later. And he assembles an army. Verse 2 says 2,000 soldiers were with Saul and another 1,000 were with his son Jonathan. Gibeah was Saul's hometown. And Michmash is another city within the Benjaminite territory. Verses 3 and 4. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. The ESV commentary on 1 Samuel suggests that Saul had put together this army not for the purpose of conquest over the Philistines, but for defense from the Philistines. And that Jonathan somewhat took it upon himself to go to battle. Now, I've mentioned this point before, but the Israelites and the Philistines were hated enemies. And part of the reason why the Israelites had wanted a king was to have someone to go to battle on their behalf against groups like the Philistines. In 1 Samuel chapter 9, when Samuel is given a prophetic vision of the king he's to anoint, the Lord talks of victory over the Philistines. 1 Samuel 9, 16. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. But in today's chapter, Saul isn't himself really doing anything to lead Israel to victory. He's just trying to not lose more ground. And it was Jonathan who had the victory. The passage says that Saul blew the horn of victory. Even though he wasn't the one who earned it, he's happy to share in taking the credit. That one victory does not end the war, though. Instead... It's effectively poking at the hornet's nest. In verse 5, we see the Philistines regrouping for a counterattack. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, troops like the sand of the seashore, the Philistines have a massive force. At the beginning of the passage, we learn that Saul and Jonathan combined had an army of 3,000 Israelites. But with what the Philistines have, the Israelites are at a vast numerical disadvantage. Verse 6 looks at the event from the perspective of the Israelite army. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble... For the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. Verse 7. 
And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. The Israelites are so overwhelmed that soldiers are trying to find places to hide. So the Israelites had had an early victory in battle, but they're staring down a war against a foe who has them vastly outnumbered. It's not the first time that God's people have found themselves up against incredible odds. Think of Moses and the Israelites as they stared down the waters of the Red Sea with the advancing Egyptian army. God acted in a mighty and miraculous way by parting the waters. But the Israelites here won't see the Lord work anything miraculous due to Saul's sin. And that brings us to our second scene, beginning in verse 8. We see Saul's sin. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Definitely a difficult situation. There's no disputing that. In this verse, we're told that Saul had been instructed by Samuel to wait for seven days at Gilgal. That's the same place where Samuel had told him to wait for seven days in chapter 10, just before Saul became king. So we're not sure if Samuel's command in chapter 10 was meant to be prophetic or if Saul was given the instruction to wait at Gilgal on more than one occasion. In either case, the passage does mention here that there was a seven-day waiting period which was appointed by Samuel. But ultimately, those seven days were not a command from Samuel, but were a command from God. The verse mentions that Samuel did wait seven days, but Samuel had not come. And so Saul decides to take matters into his own hands. He had been told to wait because Samuel was to come and offer sacrifices. That was his rule. It was not Saul's rule. Verse 9. So Saul said, bring the burnt offerings here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Saul orders Samuel's sacrifice. Verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet and greet him. Meet him and greet him. If Saul had waited just a few more minutes, but he gets impatient. Verse 11. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered in Michmash, so he's making excuses. He starts off by blaming Samuel because he didn't get there sooner, trying to justify his disobedience. Yes, Samuel had not come in those seven days, but that had not given King Saul license to take it upon himself to order the sacrifices. The excuses continue in verse 12. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. He cites his fears. It's one thing to be afraid, but that is not a justification to sin. Saul says that he has not sought the favor of the Lord. But him making these sacrifices wasn't necessary. He could have prayed. He could have led others in prayer. There's other things he could have done. Saul says in the verse, I forced myself. 
implying he didn't even really want to do it. But he made himself disobey because he thought it was essential. But once again, his impatience and fear are not a license for disobedience. Verses 13 and 14, Timor responds. And that'll bring us to our third scene, the judgment on Saul. Samuel says, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So these verses are very serious. And again, the judgment is not because Samuel says so. Samuel has no true authority. It's from the Lord. And God's judgment is that Saul's kingdom will not continue. And again, when we read this passage, it can be tempting to think, is what Saul did really so bad? He ordered some sacrifices that would have been made a few minutes later. He had been told to wait for seven days, and seven days came and went. To the letter of the law, it almost seems like Saul followed it. But that doesn't change the fact that it wasn't Saul's job to offer the sacrifices in that situation. Saul had less manpower and fewer soldiers. His men were hiding and about to desert him. They appear as though they're about to get conquered by the Philistines. Couldn't Saul catch a break? Why such a heavy-handed response for what he did? It almost seems like Saul got punished on a technicality. Why was Saul's sacrifice so bad? David and Solomon both make sacrifices at different times when they're kings of Israel, and it's not a bad thing. So the issue isn't that it was inherently sinful for the king to make a sacrifice. And yet, we see the harsh response for Saul when he does it. When David offers sacrifices, he's given a divine command and told to do so. Solomon offers sacrifices at the dedication of the temple and in the presence of the priests. But the issue with Saul is that he takes it upon himself to offer sacrifices. And that wasn't his role. So that's part of the issue. At 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says that the Lord looks at the heart. God knows who Saul truly is. Saul's unlawful sacrifice is not just one little slip up. It's out of the heart of a man who does not seek to honor the Lord. Saul not only oversteps his role, we also see a lack of faith in a time of crisis. He had a promise that Samuel would be there. He was God's chosen king over Israel. (coughs) He had been equipped with what he needed for victory. And he ultimately gets impatient. I think of passages in the New Testament about elders and how they are the ones who are judged more strictly in teachers. Well, that's also true for a king. He was supposed to be an exemplar of faith and virtue. He was supposed to be the man after God's own heart. And that is not what we see from Saul. He struggled to believe in the promises of God and did that which was sinful. It was blasphemous to approach God in this way. And it was blasphemous to approach God in any other way than what he had deemed to be appropriate. 
We don't get to just approach a holy God in any way we want. We live in an age right now that is very casual about God. People make their opinions about God, what God is like, what God accepts, what God says is moral. And we put our opinions as if those are on equal footing with Scripture. But God is holy and almighty, and he is the one who deems how he is to be approached. Saul did not patiently wait upon the Lord as he was commanded to do. He tries to take matters into his own hands. In the words of John Wesley, there is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. Saul had exactly what he needed. We need to trust that God is enough even when we think we don't have enough. Because God is. It's not about our strength or our ability. But it's also important to remember that the Lord looks at the heart. When David is chosen to be the next king, the exact phrase will be used when Samuel questions that. That the Lord looks at the heart. And the Lord wanted a man after his own heart. And Saul wasn't that man. The Lord knows our strengths, our weaknesses. He knows how he has equipped us. David would be the king who is after God's own heart. Now over these last few weeks, we've looked at Israel's demand for a king. We've met Saul. We've seen him become king, seen his early victory. And now we see his downfall. It's the first of many falls for him. Saul will grow more and more sinful and murderous and paranoid. There's nothing that we love more than a redemption story. The Bible is one great big redemption story. From humanity's fall to God's grace and his work throughout history, to Christ's coming into the world to redeem sinful humanity, to the Bible's culmination in Jesus bringing total restoration, making all things new, setting all things right. And there are lots of individual redemption stories within the Bible. We see redemption in the lives of the apostles. Peter denies Jesus three times and is restored. The apostles abandon Jesus before he goes to the cross. And they're the ones he sends out to found his church. We love the parable of the prodigal son where what is lost becomes found. The son is alive who had been thought to be dead. We love redemption stories in movies and in our popular culture. We love the story of someone who has failed, someone who's hit rock bottom, someone where it doesn't seem like there's any way out, and then they find one, or a victory is had, or a struggle is overcome, or a person's name is vindicated. We love that story. Sadly, Saul's story is not that story. He was a man who had it all and lost it all. He had a divine anointing. He had the skills to be a leader. He had successes as a leader before his own sin sowed the seeds of his downfall. And his lack of repentance continued that downward spiral. We sometimes see stories of an athlete who had all the talent in the world, but who caused their own downfall. Not because of injuries or a lack of skill, but because of issues with drugs or gambling or crime. How many famous actors or famous musicians can we think of who had tremendous talent, incredible individual talent, who had fame and fortune, but who went on paths that led to destruction, 
You hear about incredibly charismatic ministry leaders and pastors who fall into sin and disgrace themselves and in the process, God's kingdom. We love the redemption story and we should rejoice that God is a gracious God. May we all be a living testimony to God's grace and forgiveness. But we should also look to the downward spiral story as an example of where all of us would be doomed without God's amazing grace. The downward spiral story is a cautionary tale of how far people can fall. And while Saul's story is not an example of God's grace, your story hopefully is. We are not holy. We don't get to decide the terms for how we approach God. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has died so that we could be made right with God. Jesus is the true king. David would be the man after God's own heart. But he was still just a man, and he still sinned. Jesus never did. While we have nothing on our own to bring before the Lord, Jesus gives access through his gospel when we trust in him. And may that be our good news. May that be our hope. May it be our joy. May it be our belief. May it be the fuel that puts us into the world, serving the Lord, living for him and for his glory every day. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, once again, we just thank you for your goodness and grace, Lord. And again, we should love the redemption story because that is what the human heart is pointed to. Lord, that we are a sinful people and there is a way to redemption through Christ the Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.